So I teach Middle Eastern politics and uh, you can imagine this is this is a perfect place for um, for conflict. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it, all I teach is conflict, it seems sometimes. And and people who are really engaged in Middle Eastern politics or issues often get into like big shouting matches, that kind of thing um, about what's going on in the Middle East, uh, what, you know, whose side we should take or whatever. And, you know, and when I'm in, in those situations, which can, which can get really tense between, you know, two sides, uh, I often pray to God, just make me peace. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Challenge Podcast. My name is Reese Fowler, and we are so thankful that you decided to join us today. We, um, as a podcast and as a community, we aim to be a robust community of men discipling under Jesus Christ. And again, we recognize it's a, a vast statement. And if you go back to our third episode of our podcast, we have a conversation with Reverend James Ellis III, and we kind of dig a little bit deeper into what discipleship actually means and that would be a helpful conversation for you, even heading into our conversation today and in the future. So if you haven't given that a listen, feel free to pause right now, go back to our third episode, have a listen, and then jump into this one because we believe that would be really helpful. Well, today we are really honored to have Dr. Paul Rowe with us uh, from Trinity Western University. Um, this is a professor of ours that we really respect and uh, when we kind of created a short list of who we wanted to have on this platform, Dr. Rowe was right up there. And so we're just so excited to dive into a little bit of conversation today um, around masculinity, foolishness, um, biblical manhood, um, all the good stuff. So uh, Dr. Rowe, if you just want to introduce yourself to our listeners, um, that would be really sweet. All right. Thanks, Reese. Um, yeah. So I'm uh, professor of political and international studies here at Trinity Western. I mm. uh, teach. I like to say that I teach most of the international and uh, developing world politics courses. My specialty is uh, generally in Middle Eastern politics, although okay. I've recently also been doing South Asia, which is like India and its neighbors. Right. Um, so those are areas that are important to me, and I've spent lots of time in those parts of the world. Um, and yeah, and and I talk politics. Wonderful, wonderful. How much time did you spend in, say, the Middle East? Yeah, so I like to say I've spent about two years of my life in the Middle East uh, in a couple of different stints, and, and I've visited numerous times as well. So um, mostly that was time spent in Egypt. Uh, so I lived in Egypt uh, right after I graduated from my undergraduate degree. And then I, uh, about four years later, I was back again for another year working uh, with some of the same people, but also um, doing my dissertation research when I was doing my PhD. Wonderful. And how did you end up here at Trinity Western teaching political yeah. science? So I've been teaching here since 2005. Okay. Uh, I arrived here on a, uh, left Toronto on a really wet, cold, disgusting day. Mm, and I came those. here and it was a beautiful spring morning with the... Oh. Uh, with all of the cherry blossoms out and it smelled like spring. And I thought to myself, why would I ever go back there? Oh man, that's awesome. Um, well, kind of one of the um, core kind of ideas that we want to address, not only in this episode of the podcast, but in the podcast as a whole is um, just masculinity and issues surrounding masculinity, particularly for the Christian man. 
And so, Dr. Rowe, why are you passionate about issues surrounding masculinity and why do you believe this matters? Um, even like w- what kind of drew you to even um, accept the invitation to be on this podcast today? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, growing up in the Christian church, I think I witnessed um, a lot of the ways in which really stereotype notions of masculinity uh, and family roles often kind of hurt boys and men. Hmm. Um, of course, I was a boy and then later a man, but uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it affected me, but I think not just me, other people around me as well. Um, and it's strange to look back on that because um, I was and I still am a really conservatively minded Christian. Yeah. Um, and I probably felt most of, most at home in the church. Like, it's not like I felt like growing up in the church, I was alienated from the church in some way. Right. I was really at home in the church. Um, and so, and, and I was, uh, you know, brought up in kind of this, uh, this understanding of masculinity, but at the same time, looking back on it, I realized that it didn't, it didn't do well for me, um, in a lot of ways. Um, so I often felt alienated, um, because I was, uh, kind of studious, not, you know, it's right. probably not too surprising that I'm a professor now that I yeah. might've been a bit of a geek yeah. when I was younger. Maybe I still am, but it doesn't come out as easily when you're a right. uh, professor in front okay. of people, but, yeah. um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I was a, a studious, not particularly outgoing child, <laughs> and uh, I, I often questioned authority. Uh, I, hmm. I often questioned um, kind of Christian slogans along the way. I wasn't a- a- athletic. I think in a lot of ways I felt like I was not the image of what was expected of a man right. in, in uh, church circles. So I had um, little that attracted others to me in, this, in these kind of traditional ways, and I often felt that. And of course... Um, I grew up in a really kind of uh, pretty bourgeois, what I would call as a political scientist, a bourgeois environment, right. like an environment where, um, uh, you know, the North American church was just, you know, the, a suburban church where I was, you know, watching TV and doing kind of normal things that, uh, uh, you know, a suburban white North American male did. Right. And that is the North American church. And at least the, that was, so it was what I was born into. But the church didn't really celebrate me, I felt like, as a person. Uh, and, and that particularly hurt because I was a Christian and I felt like this was the place where I was supposed to feel safe and secure. So, um, the church didn't afford, uh, and, and I don't think that the church can generally afford to lose people, uh, over things that are not really relevant to being a Christian. Like, I don't yeah. think that should be a, a big deal. Um, that I think like both ultimately we need to have a really wide array of understanding of what it means to be masculine or to be a man. Right. Hmm. Wow. Well, thanks for... I mean, integrating your story into that as well. And uh, I'm sure that, uh, I mean, even for all of us here, I, I'm not sure about the rest of you guys, Reese, Manny, Antonio, but e- even for me growing up, I remember being in the church and there were times in which I looked around me and I saw, um, I remember being in my youth group and like in grade uh, seven, I think is when I entered my youth group and there were older uh, males who were just doing the craziest stuff, like wrestling, you know, doing backflips off the monkey bars, you know, just doing crazy stuff. And I was like, man, I am just not in that mold. And so, uh, how do I force my way into that? How do I, um, you know, become this picture of the, uh, at the time it was the grade 12 youth group guy. Um, and so, which is obviously, a maybe that's a bigger kind of picture now for me, but, um, yeah. And the, well, the, you know, the grade 12 youth group guy is probably molded in some ways. Well, in the image of the um, the youth pastor, right? Or right. The, or the, whoever is going, the leadership as well, you know, sets a lot of the um, idea of what it is to be cool or what it is to be um, accepted or, you know, be a part of the, the in crowd, right? 
Yeah, it's that trickle down effect almost. Yeah. It's almost like even even summer camp, uh, like it, the Christian summer camp, you're, you're hanging out and you got your cabin leader who's kind of throwing people around and it's like, it's just mayhem. Yeah. Um, and that's what it was like to be, like that's, that's what I thought it was like to be a man. So yeah, yeah. I, I like that you brought that up. Dr. Rowe, just a kind of a off the top question as we kind of talk about this idea of maybe this um, being trickled down into how we view the older generation of men. Um, do you have any kind of insight or opinion on maybe where that kind of idea of a man that's now trickled down almost began? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think, like, I, I think that there are uh, there are ancient examples. <laughs> there are examples I'm going to talk about with regard to the Bible, for example. So, I mean, this this has existed for centuries, if if not millennia, even. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, looking at the the modern church, I remember looking at uh, you know some of the stories that I've seen even of the time. Uh, so a lot of the like, modern evangelicalism kind of dates back to um, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and some of the stories that I've heard about some of the people that are like heroes of the faith at that time, um, they did these kind of sometimes really reckless things, I think, and sometimes really daring exploits and that kind of thing, who became kind of paragons of what the, the Christian church is all about. Um, so uh, I don't, I probably don't have time to go into it right now, but the story of um, uh, the guy who wrote um, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, okay, Horatio Spafford, okay, this guy uh, is held up as like the model of biblical manhood, I think, for a lot of people. And the story behind it as well with my soul comes out numerous times. You'll hear the story about how this guy lost all of his family in a shipwreck. Uh, his wife uh, sends back a telegram to him, you know, that I, I survived alone. And he writes this, this you know, amazing uh, hymn that we right. continue to sing today. If you dig more into the story of Horatio Spafford, this was a guy who took reckless, reckless risks. Um, he was a very bad businessman. Uh, he did mm. all sorts of things that I can tell you right now were not good ideas. Right. <laughs> okay. And even the the trip that was planned that, you know, created the, the story behind it as well with my soul, even that trip, was, you know, he was essentially sending his wife abroad to try to hide what he was doing um, back at back at home in Chicago. Um, okay, so there's an example of a guy who was, you know, held up as a paragon of virtue. Yeah. But if you dig into who this individual was, he was a deeply flawed individual. Right. Um, so uh, um, that's just one example. Um, there are others. So I and, and I don't mean to say that he was a bad guy. I mean, I don't, I don't even mind to mean to say that. Um, you know, his story is not something that we should celebrate in many ways. I just think that, like, there's a lot more to the story than we have ever totally understood. And then I also think about somebody like I did some study into the work of uh, Wilford Grenfell. This is the like uh, pioneering missionary guy who had like who was, uh, again, a kind of paragon of the virtues of what a good Christian man would be in the mm-hmm. turn of the century. Uh, Adrift on an Ice Pan is this like story that he wrote um, and became famous because of it. Um, but what was great about him was his charisma, his like what they actually referred to as muscular Christianity. Um, and I think it set a stage for how we understand, um, you know, what it is to be a good man, a good Christian man. Muscular Christianity. So do you think that that's something that, and to continue, I know we're really sort of starting to stray, but do you think that muscular Christianity is sort of 
um, what's considered masculine now. Um, do we yeah, misinterpret masculine for muscular? Yeah, for sure. I think that that does happen. I, I mean, I don't want to over overstate it. I think that there's lots of people who, who don't think in this way. Um, but I think it is it has, has created a kind of model for how we define what it is to be a great Christian man. Um, so. Uh, so I think, for example, you know, in the Christian church today, we have uh, kind of an expectation that men need to have charisma. Uh, they right. need to have confidence. They need to have certainty. They need to be categorical. That's the way I would put it. They need to be categorical in the way that they see the world. And so strong, they need to be strong individuals, not just in like physical terms, but they need to be able to handle emotional and other crises without breaking down or showing weakness, for example. Uh, they need to be um, uh, well-defined, even well-branded um, right. as a person. Um, so I think these are things that make it difficult for us to be authentic. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, even to preface where where we'll head now, um, there's, a, there's a buzzword in our modern culture um, or a buzz phrase, which is toxic masculinity. So Dr. Rowe, could you define even just from your own viewpoint. What is toxic masculinity? So I'd, I'd go back to some of these things that I'm talking about, about um, excessive confidence, about um, uh, at categorical thinking. When I say categorical thinking, that's the, the ability to be extremely defined in who you are and to impose that kind of definition on people around you. Um, so it makes it very difficult for you to to, to be a questioner, to be, um, so if, when you have critical thoughts, for example, or you start questioning yourself, or you think I have internal weaknesses, that yeah. becomes a crisis. Um, if you're a categorical thinker, because you're not allowed to have those kinds of crises, right? right? You're not allowed to doubt yourself or you doubt your faith along the way. So that becomes a bit of a problem. So I think that uh, when we have these uh, character traits developed through, you know, what is expected of us within the church or within our social networks, um, I think that becomes a, a, a like a sudden crisis for a lot of men, um, especially it'll happen at different times during their lives. I mean, for some people, it'll happen, I think, in your 20s. Sometimes it'll happen in your teens. Sometimes it'll happen in midlife crisis when you right. suddenly realize I'm not exactly what I think I want to be, you know, or what, I, what, I, what I'm expected to be by the church. Right. Yeah, so it's almost like t toxic masculinity um, <coughs> is this black and white thinker as well as this kind of black and white doer um, in many ways. And uh, I find that really fascinating. I don't think, th I think often when we think of toxic masculinity, I mean, um, I think of uh, earlier this year, Gillette came out with this uh, viral ad um, which outlined a number of uh, issues with. Uh, masculinity today and a lot of it was like men at the barbecue uh, watching their boys you know fight and wrestle around and cheering them on or whistling at a woman as they walk down the street which and these are all talk this is this is toxic behavior um, but it's so interesting Dr. Will that you brought up that there's this issue also surrounding um, thought and uh, that men are kind of uh, not only you know, are acting this way, but they're also thinking this kind of black and white. I can't question these things. I, if I'm a man, I have to be clear on what my opinions are, all these things. Yeah. I love that definition because it addresses maybe not, um, the symptomatic issue of toxic masculinity, but it really addresses the heart condition. Hmm. Maybe let me talk about some of the ways I've seen this manifested in the church and that'll maybe help to kind of 
flesh out what I'm talking about. Um, so I think we've sown the seeds of uh, ministry failures in this way for many, many decades. Right. Um, it helps me. It helps to me to explain some of the high-profile failures that we've seen in the evangelical world over the last few years. So I think of, for example, people like. Um, I'm sorry, I'd have to name names. Um, James McDonald. Uh, so he's an um, evangelical pastor uh, based in, uh, I think it was in Illinois. Right. Um, uh, Heritage, uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, Harvest Bible Chapels right. um, okay. were his, his ministry. Hmm. Um, uh, and Mark Driscoll at, yep. uh, at Mars Hill. Of course. Yeah. Um, in, in Seattle. Or Bill Hybels, who's gotten in trouble as of well. Course. A guy who uh, who's, uh, established a massive uh, ministry out of uh, Chicago as well, the area of, of Chicago. Um, and uh, these are three kinds of individuals who I think... Um, like when you look at their failures, uh, they have a whole has a whole lot to do with their inability to kind of get past categorical thinking and so get true. past this kind of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, like for many of them, it wasn't that a major moral failure. Even it was just the inability to say, "I need to listen to people. I need to, um, you know, I uh, I need to, you know, get past the veneer that I have this like practice veneer that I've created to become a Christian, a big Christian leader by being like." making the big statements that everybody will react to for example right um uh so i mean these are these are people that i think could have used a little bit less toxic masculinity uh in the past right Hmm. i mean we in vancouver were kind of in the wake of some of what happened in seattle mark driscoll's ministry um and I remember things escalate. I, I was a, I was a listener. I was a, I was a fan. You know, I, yeah, I sure. would, I would tune into the, um, what was the Mars Hill kind of church podcast and listen in. And there was some provocative stuff being said on, you know, from the pastor. And really, it just kind of, you just hear little, little things at a time until it was um, a number of senior leaders from the church protesting outside of their morning service saying something is wrong here yeah and uh so it's it's pretty wild that it took you mean even something like that to say this is toxic and and what's interesting is to them it wasn't like so much that he was preaching some kind of heresy or something it was all about his own personal style and not being able to listen not you know not thinking of himself as being a leader who um would uh would bend to the advice of others you know? right those, those are the real things that were the problem there. there's very there's a very consistent theme of these men lacking humility and they seem to, to just very be kind of not necessarily self-absorbed but they're very um unwilling to kind of bend to, not not to bend but they're unwilling to kind of listen to other people and i think that just really shows that the the aspect of humility is so important um and the lack thereof maybe is uh, an aspect of toxic masculinity. Yeah, for sure. I, so I going into this, when we were knowing that we were going to talk about this, uh, one of the things I uh, thought about is, uh, so a little, like, when I was an undergraduate, I, I studied biblical Hebrew. So I have a bit of, yeah. um, a little bit of understanding of the Hebrew Bible, which was an amazing opportunity just mm. to getting to understand things that um, from the Bible that uh, you wouldn't otherwise, you know, get into. Um, but, uh, the, so there are three words in Hebrew translated fool. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to zoom in on one of them. All right. So there are three different w- words, uh, translated fool. And the one, uh, one of them is Kassil. Okay. Um, it's a specific kind of fool. Okay. There's not, everybody is the same kind of fool. Kassil. That's Kassil, the word. Yeah. Kassil. 
Um, you could spell it lots of different ways. Maybe K-A-S-E-E-L, something like that. Uh, so it's a specific kind of fool. It's when you see it described in the Bible, it's a blustering, confident, black and white thinking kind of person, a person with the, uh, innate, um, uh, certainty of his own righteousness and, and, and sometimes his own rightness, uh, uh, who is no respecter of persons. And the quintessential example of this, I think in the Bible is Esau, um, who's this mm. guy who like, um, uh, when he's talking to his brother about his birthright, he's like, what use is my birthright to me if I'm hungry? You know, if I've starved yeah. to death, right? Yeah. It's a guy who doesn't like think particularly, you know, he doesn't have these long-term thoughts. He has these like... He's impulsive. I need, I, yeah, I need my immediate um, needs uh, uh, um, dealt with. Um, but, you know, beyond Esau, um, even David, who's like, again, an exemplar in scripture... Of, of biblical manhood in a lot of ways, I think, is a guy who really struggled with being a casile. Like, this was a guy who, um, uh, I think the best example of this in my head is the story where he, inter- he, um, he there's a bit of a play on words in this story, actually, because he, uh, he, inter- he interacts with this guy named Nabal, and Nabal is another word for fool, okay? There, these are two fools, basically, uh, in this story, okay? So, in this story, uh, um, you know, really quickly, um, uh, David gets tells he says says to Nabal that he wants to share some of his food, and Nabal responds to him like with a with a rebuff and says he's not going to do it for him. And David's response is to all of the guys around him: "Strap on your strap on your swords. We're going hmm. at this guy." Like that's his right. immediate response to yeah. uh, to Nabal, and it it then stands to Abigail in this story, of course, to like intervene and to, uh, to make peace between her husband at the time, Nabal and, uh, and David. Um, so I've struggled over the years with David as like an exemplar of biblical manhood because he displays some of these negative examples along yeah, the way. I yeah. mean, not to even mention the, um, his sin with Bathsheba, right? And, right. and the fact that he actually, um, murders her husband, right? But I think the real difference here between, say, for example, Nabal and uh, David in this story is that he listens when God chastises him. He listens when Abigail comes and tells him, you know, hold off on this. Yeah, my husband's a fool, but, you know, um, you can demonstrate something better in this. Right. And of course, he listens to uh, Nathan, the prophet after after his sin with Bathsheba. He, He listens at least. Um, so I think that's a that's a big distinction. Um, we see it uh, revealed again later on in his grandson, Rehoboam. So Rehoboam is this guy. He comes to the throne and uh, he responds. Uh, so uh, people come to him and say, you know, Solomon, your father, he was pretty tough with us. He taxed us pretty heavily. Maybe you could, you know, lay off on all of that. Right. And he then consults his older advisors and his younger advisors and the younger advisors who he listens to come along and say, no, you need to tell him who's boss, show him, you know, who's in charge. Right. And Rehoboam actually uses gendered language and it doesn't always pick up, but I think usually we're, we're kind of clued into it these days. He uses gendered language where he says, uh, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. What he's saying there, like he's, he's making a, a rude uh, comment. That's, um, that's pretty rude. Language, yeah. <laughs> to try to to try to demonstrate how masculine he's going to be, like how awesome his power is going to be in this situation. Another really bad example, I think. Um, and I've seen some of these level of confidence superiority displayed in the church at different times. And I have to tell you, I struggle with it myself. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm immune from it either. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah, none of us are. 
100%. And it's so interesting to even... Dr. Rowe, could you repeat some of these, um, even just the root words of, of fool for us again? Yeah, and just sure. so even if someone's listening, they can write them down and um, yeah, okay. remember. So the word kasil is a, a Hebrew word. Um, it's, uh, uh, I have to look it up again. I think it's it starts with kaf for sure. Sin kaf sin lamet. Uh, and, uh, so if you're looking up, your te- if you're studying Hebrew right now, Man, uh, you, as you do, so Kassil, it comes up, uh, a lot in the Proverbs and a lot of different places. Um, so the other words for, for fool are Nabal in, in the scriptures. And that's generally somebody who's basically ignorant of God. Um, that's, that's how a Nabal is and literally, and you see at one point in the scriptures, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's Nabal. That's a different word. Right. Um, but Kassil is this like blustering guy, like I said, like a kind of characterized yeah. like Esau or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's another fool. And again, a lot of places in the, and you don't pick this up in the scriptures in English because we generally translate all these words as fool. Um, so you don't see the distinction between them, but Kassil, the other thing about Kassil is, um, I have a special place in my heart because um, Kassil is actually also a, a constellation in the in the sky. Um, oh. So they actually, nice. when you look up in the sky and you refer, if you, today, if you look up and see Orion, I think actually Orion is in the sky today. Like if you wake up tonight and it's a clear yeah. night, you can see Orion. That's actually, in Hebrew, it's referred to as Kassil. It's called the fool. Yes. Um, but in, I think, uh, the, the same thing applies. Like, so it's this big, ro- robust, like, um, uh, you know, man who is certain of himself, a great hunter and that kind of thing, but character traits, maybe he doesn't have the great. Yeah, lacking. Yeah. yeah. It almost seems like a very large aspect of toxic masculinity is just trying to be as big of a presence as you can be um, in the society you're in, just being big and loud. Right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So moving on, we're going to start to take uh maybe a different look at uh, what we've discussed so far um so my question for you dr Rowe, is how do we show our culture which by and large is against the concept of gender roles the value of godly manhood as it is described in the bible so i remember uh, it says um Maybe to explain this really quickly, when you're doing your PhD, when you're when you're becoming an academic, you have to do oral and written comprehensive. So this is like right. massive um, exams in the discipline that are supposed to prove that you can actually teach this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember doing preparation for my one of my uh, comprehensives. And when I was writing my comprehensives, I actually made the argument that the, one of the greatest political triumphs of the church, and I'm talking about like back in the day of Constantine, like back in the fourth okay. century, one of the greatest triumphs of the church came as a result of the fact that they were better organized than the larger community of which they were a part. That they like, they were able to show to people um, uh, ideas and uh, ability to organize um, that was far stronger than some of the other things that were going on around them. Like as Rome is crumbling, the church is still holding together. Um, and this is, I think you, you see this as well in the writings of Augustine, for example, who talks about how um, when Rome was being looted, um, the places where people went for shelter were the churches, even pagan people went to the churches for shelter because that was a place where, um, the, uh, where they could be safe. Um, and I think this goes for what the church does with regard to the larger community. Um, this also goes for our internal norms. If the Christian faith has answers to many of our basic human needs, 
then we need to present them. We need to have them available to people. Um, so, and we live in a time and age where people are becoming more and more categorical. You know, I, when I turn on Facebook, like people are just getting toxic with one another yeah. and the way that they communicate with one another. And of course I do political science. This is pretty important. I think to politics, um, that we have a whole lot of difficulty communicating with one another as though we're all human beings that they're all in this together. Uh, mm. You know, when you take a political stance, it's almost like you have to dehumanize the other side. Um, and I find that a really concerning thing. So we've polarized culture to a point where people have little mercy for the other side um, or even the other, like another person. Um, like when you distill a person's um, political or other kinds of beliefs uh, down to one thing that you can kind of condemn in a really quick statement, um, it makes it difficult for you to embrace them as another human being. I think we see that in the church too, um, like that polarization, um, whether between the conservative um, or liberal yeah. in faith or theology or whatever it may be, any disagreements. I think I think we're seeing that like polarization like spill over um, right. into the church. Um, so I think it's so good that you um, sort of highlight like how harmful that is. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I thinking back over uh, people that I think have been good examples of uh, you know trying to steer us clear of that kind of toxic max masculinity in the past. Um, I like to tell a story about uh, a Christian guy that I worked for who was a landscaper. So I was doing landscaping with him. I was just a, uh, this was while, while I was still a graduate student and right. I needed money to pay the bills. Um, I'm not your obvious like candidate for landscaping, but, uh, but I took the job cause I needed the money and uh, I worked for this guy and uh, his name is Kevin. And, um, uh, a lot of the guys that I worked with in landscaping, like they weren't Christians either. They 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 knew that Kevin, the guy who was in charge, was a Christian, but they weren't. Um, you know, they, these guys weren't. These are were, these were guys who were not concerned about their Christian life from one day to the next. And they were the kinds of guys who, when things went wrong, would like swear up a streak. They would they get upset. They would turn on one another. Those are the kinds of typical ways that they would deal with, with crises. Well, they used to tell stories that in a sense, they were kind of mocking him, but at the same time, I think that it, it displayed a certain, um, uh, admiration for Kevin, this guy. So they used to tell the story about how like every single, this one day, every single piece of equipment, would would go down like every single lawnmower was down every sin single weed eater was down nothing was working the very last weed eater um in the, this guy's hands um breaks down it's not working anymore and he goes to his boss like swearing up a blue streak because nothing is working right today and and kevin's response is always yeah well we'll have to do something about that wow you know he was always like totally calm in all of these situations uh and it it appeals to me as like a model for how we respond to crises that we do so with calm and peace and presence um and understanding that you know god's in charge of it all ultimately at the end of the day and that that should give us a feeling of peace um in james like i feel like this this passage in james is a, a kind of tonic like a your cure-all, your uh, prescription right. for your casil, okay? So that's oh. what I need as a casil, okay? Yeah. Is this story, in, uh, this verse in James. So this is James chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18. He starts off before this, he's talking about all the different kinds of things that... Um, that can come out of your mouth, right? So is, when, he, when, I, when I say that, I mean all the different like nasty things that your tongue can do, right? Now you need to tame your tongue. That's where, that's what it all starts right. out with. But then he says that wisdom, 
wisdom can help us to fix this problem, right? And in, in uh, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, he says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Uh, boy, these are huge things that can get in the way of communicating well, I think, as men. Uh, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wow. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, so I teach Middle Eastern politics and uh, you can imagine this is, this is a perfect place for, um, for conflict. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, it's, it, all I teach is conflict, it seems sometimes. And, and people um, who are really engaged in Middle Eastern politics or issues often get into like big shouting matches, that kind of thing. Um, about what's going on in the Middle East, uh, what you know, whose side we should take, or whatever. Um, and you know, and when I'm in in those situations, which can, which can get really tense between you know two sides, uh, I often pray to God, just make me peace in this situation, because it's not my immediate response either. Uh, I want to take sides. I like if I don't see, if I see an injustice, I want it to be fixed, and often without like fully understanding what the injustice is. Um, and, uh, so once again, like I say, when I'm in those situations, I'm often praying to God, please just make me a, an instrument of peace, uh, in this situation. Um, even if I can't, you know, obviously myself fix them. Wow. That, I mean, that's just very helpful outlining, um, even just like a, res- a response. Like that's just, that's a. It's a take-home response for um, anyone who's listening, um, which contrasts some of that foolishness that we talked about before. So that, that was really good. Um, our fourth question here for you, um, Dr. Rose. Um, how do we, uh, as Christian men, work out the validity of criticism behind the phrase, be a man? Um, is there still validity behind the biblical model, like model of manhood um, that sort of you've touched on? Yeah, so I think um, it's easy for us to respond, for example, to criticisms of masculinity and of, um, you know, the way that this has become toxic in our culture. It's easy for us to immediately think that we should therefore throw out the differences between men and women. And I think that would be a misunderstanding of what toxic masculinity is all about. Um, cause I think toxic masculinity is about how we conceive what a human, what a man is, uh, right. or what, what is masculine? Like, it, you know, are you doing the, the best thing as a man in a, in a given situation? So even, um, you know, even modern feminism that is typically, you know, uh, aimed at masculinizing ideas. Uh, I don't think most feminists, I can't speak for feminism in general, but I don't think that most feminists would necessarily say that that means that we do away with the the understanding that there are of course basic differences between men and women and that we operate in different ways. Um, and I think the same thing goes for us. We need to accept that, th- that, you know, men are wired differently from, from women. I think that's why we're susceptible to certain kinds of behaviors that are, that are problematic. So, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, understanding that there's such a thing as being a man, that there's something gendered about who we are as individuals when we're born genetically as, uh, as men. And that's going to, it's going to fire in certain ways. It's going to make us susceptible to certain kind of problems. In fact, I think that's probably a really important thing to understand that when you're a man, you're going to be susceptible to 
you know, to certain kinds of um, certain kinds of problems. Like the reality is that men are the ones who are drivers of pornography, for example, or we're the drivers of conflict in a lot of parts of the world as well, because we yeah. don't react health in healthy ways yeah. to, to some of these situations. So um, so fully understanding that we're vulnerable to kind of toxic masculinity is a good place to start, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and even that phrase, be a man, we can reframe it. And why can't we? Because I think Jesus was, in his time, redeeming all sorts of phrases, ideas, concepts, and turning them for um, kingdom value. And so be a man, what does that actually mean? Well, be, even just the virtues that James outlined that we were reading before, those are um, attributes of a godly man or woman. So um, if I feel challenged to be a man, I want my mind to go not to, okay, muscular manhood, like we were kind of uh, pointing at before, but peaceable manhood. And uh, Jesus is a great example of that. But. Yeah, and just to close, Dr. Rowe, um, do you have perhaps a short practical challenge that you can give to the people listening that they can maybe incorporate through their week in light of the conversation that we've just had? Okay, so I guess I would challenge everybody to think a little bit about uh, to what extent, do, do like, am I a fool? To what extent uh, do I display some of those um, characteristics of somebody who, uh, who doesn't listen? Somebody who uh, thinks that uh, an immediate response is necessary to every kind of conflict situation, who uh, who who you know might use his muscle to respond to those kinds of situations uh, in inappropriate ways. Um, to what extent you know am I am I that person? I, I've mentioned that I myself uh, struggle with these things just as much as anybody else. I'm sure. Um, uh, you know, I've been in situations where I feel like. Uh, the immediate response is to get defensive and that that's the best way out of a conflictual situation or the best way to get my own out of a situation. When I realize looking back on it, that perhaps the best way out of that situation would have been a much more diplomatic approach to another person that right. I'm in conflict with, for example. Um, and that doing so could show almost as much confidence, if not more. Um, and that that was that that's a better way to to address conflict situations, for example, or situations where um, I'm demanding something from a, or I want something from a uh, uh, from a person at a store or something like that. If I want a refund on something or something, <laughs> you know, I've been I've been displeased by somebody's service or something like that, that a, uh, that a harsh rebuff is going to be a whole lot less successful than a diplomatic approach where you try to. Um, to build humanity with that other person. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's really helpful. That's a great challenge for us, even just to reflect on ourselves. In what way are we just simply acting like fools? And um, we, we, I really loved the conversation around foolishness. Um, even though that word, it kind of takes my mind to weird places. Uh, you know, I think of like a clown or like a jester, but um, we've, we've looked at some biblical examples of fools. And um, even just in our conclusion here, um, we've also looked at the antidote to foolishness, which is uh, to be peaceable, to be diplomatic, as we were just talking about. Um, and ultimately that is through abiding, um, sitting under, um, the one who is 
the embodiment of peace. That's Jesus Christ. And so um, for you listeners, I hope that you found this conversation helpful. I know for us sitting here uh, the whole time, we were just kind of smiling and looking at each other because there's so many great thoughts. Um, Thank you, Dr. Rowe, for uh, being with us today and for taking your time out of your busy schedule to sit and to talk about issues that uh, we know all of us care about. And um, yeah, thank you uh, to all you listeners who tuned in today and we'll see you next time. Thanks for the opportunity.